0: Welcome back to the EV Life podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Maharaj, and we have a great episode planned for you today. I'll be talking to someone from a company that I'm sure you're all familiar with, Shell. So, you know, we all know Shell as a fuel provider. They have successful businesses and energy projects from coast to coast. So most people in Canada are probably familiar with Shell. But the company is eyeing the future and including strategies to reach net zero targets and how it will support its customers and clients along their own sustainability journeys, including through EV charging. So there's, you know, there's a lot happening in the EV scene across several industries. And Shell is an interesting one because, as I mentioned before, we're all familiar with them in the oil and gas sector. So for this episode, we sat down with Terry Broughton who is the general manager for Shell's North American e-mobility division. Terry grew up here in Alberta and has worked for Shell since he graduated from the University of Calgary. He's been with the organization as it began transforming its business to meet net zero targets. So some of the things they've done is invest in the e-mobility space, including charging networks. And they're also doing work to dispel myths about EVs. So, without further ado, let's dive right into my chat with Terry Rauten from Shell. Hi, Terry. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Thanks, Crystal. Pleasure to be here.
0: So, you are the general manager of Shell's e-mobility division for North America. Is that correct?
1: I am, yes. It's a, it's a new division. Um, and so, we've just started ramping up this team over the past several months. Although we've got some teams who have been working in e-mobility for the past few years, but we've decided to really put a focus on it, uh, building up this organization.
0: So, Terry, I've learned that Shell has a target to become a net zero company by 2050. So first, I want to know what does net zero mean? Because I feel like I hear that term come up quite often with companies today. Can you just explain a little bit about what that means? And why did Shell make the decision to go net zero by 2050?
1: To answer your first question on what is net zero, this means that we aim to have net zero emissions from the energy that we produce and sell by year 2050. Um, And so net zero refers back to largely our carbon emissions. um, And we as a company aim to do this purposely and profitably and we will leverage a range of solutions to do this. You asked why or what went into this decision. I think, yeah. Um, And so this is a big part of our strategy, and so something you might hear me refer back to a few times is our powering progress strategy, Um, and this is what we released uh, or that we shared with the the investor community around a year and a half ago um, on our targets to become net zero by 2050. Um, And and what went into this is that it's demanded by our customers, our shareholders. Um, and wider societies. So as a company, we really have a, a responsibility to respond to the needs of these different groups. Um, in in the strategy itself, it says that we should uh, have main, four main goals. One of them is generating shareholder value. So you heard me say that we intend to do this profitably, um, achieve net zero emissions. The third is powering lives. And the fourth is respecting nature. And so Today, since I think we're diving into electric vehicle charging, um, you can imagine that uh, this is really along the path of net zero emissions. And of course, since we're we're a business, we also intend to do this profitably. And so we're looking to generate shareholder value with that. I'll touch one more on why 2050, because I think you said what what went into that decision. Um, And you might hear 2050 for other companies as well. And there there is rationale to this. So this links back to the Paris Accord. Um, and according to that, for, for the world to tackle climate change and limit the temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, we all of us need to stop adding to the stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so this is what's really known as net zero emissions. Um, and Shell is targeting to do this by 2050 as well.
0: So that's kind of where the date came in. I was going to ask about that because that is 28 years away. I'm not good at fast math. I had to <laughs> yeah, yeah. punch that in. So that is 28 years away, but that came out of the Paris Accord, correct? And, and that's why I think, yeah, as you mentioned, many companies sort of have That date or something similar.
1: I think it's what inspired us and sort of helped to put that um, a specific date in there. Something I'm really proud of as well is that this is not something that we're just pushing off to the future generations of of Shell employees. This is something that we also have interim targets on. And so in the strategy that was released a year and a half ago, we've got targets at uh, if memory serves me correct, let's say 2025, 2030, and thereafter. And these are ones that. They don't come easily either. And so later on, we might talk around some of the dilemmas to do this. Um, but this is something that we're working really hard at and is critical for our business and, and for society.
0: So it's a bit of a tiered approach. So you're not saying, yeah, we'll get to it and pushing it off. You do have targets that you're going to be meeting at different points leading up to 2050.
1: Indeed. And, and so even some of the wording that we use is important. And so when we release that strategy, we switch the wording to say a target. Uh, rather than, say, aspiration, because we, we of course, have the North Star and the big, big targets that we've got, um, but these are very real. And so these are how our senior executives are remunerated. Um, They go into all of our performance. They're on, uh, I was just about to use a shell acronym, but I'll avoid it, into our performance scores each year. Um, and so this is something very, very real. It's, it's not just sort of a buzz phrase or something that only a sustainability department is doing. This is something that goes across the company.
0: Can I ask when Shell set this target?
1: It was, I know very well, because my last role was in strategy, so I was a bit closer to this. It was uh, in around March of 2021. And so that was when our CEO went to the investor community and shared more around the strategy. Um, and for us as a company as well, that's when it became very clear to us. And if you look through the strategy, it really, we don't have all the answers on exactly how we'll do it, but it goes through all of the different parts of our organizations and ways that we can work together to uh, to drive towards this.
0: And so I imagine you've certainly, as a company, began implementing steps immediately to help reach that target.
1: Yes, and, and maybe I'll break it down a little bit more. So how we measure it. Um, one of the things that we look at is in our own operations. And so this is a term, sometimes we'll hear scope one, scope two emissions. Um, and these are ones that are from, say, operating our upstream assets or our refineries or our plants. Um, and these are ones that we we can have a lot of control over. Um, the second part is what we would call scope three emissions. These are the uh, carbon emissions from energy that we sell to customers so those scope three emissions in in our biggest customer facing business which are our mobility sites and so the shell petrol station that that hopefully a lot of the ama customers use in alberta
0: oh yeah i'm sure they do because our members get (laughs) a little bit of a discount at shell
1: yeah (laughs) and so those would be scope three emissions from us and so the the carbon that is being emitted from that vehicle um so we look at scope 1 scope 2 or scopes 2 and scope 3 um we also say that for for those harder to abate sectors or parts of the business that we will never be able to go to zero um we can either do carbon capture and storage or we can balance with offsets and so the carbon offsetting is something that um, we're really proud to to have launched in Canada as well i think around 2 years ago um, Shell became the first retailer in Canada to, to offer what we call nature-based solutions or carbon offsets where where customers are able to offset the, the carbon emissions from the fuel that they they buy.
0: So Terry, you've alluded to this, but I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into this topic because, you know, we all know Shell as an oil and gas company, but it might be surprising to a lot of our listeners to learn that Shell is kind of, well, you already have a presence in the EV Seen. Um, and I think people think of the ONG industries and the EV industries as competitors, but that certainly does not have to be the case. You know, Shell certainly is still a huge player in the ONG sphere, and you're dabbling in the EV world now. So, why was it important to make that move into EVs?
1: Yeah, for, for, first of all, you're not the only one who is surprised. <laughs> And so even, even for me, where my entire job is electric vehicle charging, um, I can tell you just in, in any given week when I'm meeting up with old friends or talking to people at industry events or, or things like that, and I share with them that I work for Shell and my business is to sell electric vehicle charging, <laughs> many of them are surprised. And so this is something that um, we'll work very, very hard um, to ensure that in the coming years it's no longer a surprise for people because of course we want to evolve our brand and even transform it to be um, one that uh, is is aligned with uh, with uh, electric vehicle charging and so our brand is shell recharge um, and as shell we must we will change what we sell and so it does link back to the strategy um, and so i think your question was um, isn't it a little bit of a, a Opposite of selling oil and gas, um, we would sell. Say that we sell energy to customers, and in our specific organization, where we're we're supporting uh, customers and, and drivers to transport themselves around the country, um, we would sell energy to them. So whether that's gasoline, um, whether it's diesel, and whether it's electric vehicle charging, um, as long as it's able to suit their needs, that's what we'll sell. Um, I think that. Part of your question was also around just sort of this pivot that we've had from sort of traditional oil and gas to electric vehicle charging.
0: Um, And and I
1: started that with, uh, it's in line with our strategy. And so it's a, a way that we can purposely accelerate towards net zero emissions. Second, I'd say that it's something that customers want. And so we want to be able to provide energy that customers want. So we will continue selling gasoline and for customers who choose to use an electric vehicle, um, we'll provide energy for them as well.
0: So something else that might be surprising to some of our listeners is that Shell actually works with companies, including AMA, to help get EV chargers installed around Alberta. Um, Is this business area of Shell a fast-growing one? And In, like, let's just say the next 20 years, will we be seeing shell charging stations on corners alongside gas stations? Is that something you sort of anticipate?
1: I can share a very confident yes and (laughs) yes. (laughs) And, and, And so for the one that you're referring to in terms of working with AMA, we do serve B2B customers as well as B2C customers. We also do this with AMA. So we've been working with your organization. Um, and we'll also offer it for consumers. So what we would refer to as the B2C customer. And and this would be probably yourself, myself, um, who are driving day to day. And in in the coming years, I don't want to say in the future because <laughs> it will start very, very quickly and then simply ramp up over the coming years. You'll see this on our existing four courts. And so sort of step one, you would see. Uh, a typical Shell gas station, and then in the parking spots, you'd see Shell recharge charging posts. Over time, those would take up more of those four courts. And so, as more and more customers convert to electric vehicle charging, we would uh, slowly move those four courts over to more electric vehicle charging sites. Um, we also will do them at what we call, at least internally, we call destination locations. And what I mean by this is um, a grocery store, a gym, a shopping mall, uh, because we're really cognizant that not all customers, as much as we'd love them to want to go to a shell station all the time, it's not necessarily the high point of everyone's day, (laughs) and they do have more convenient places to go. And so we want for the charging to be in as convenient of spots as possible, and this is where you would also see shell recharge locations at uh, Those uh, type of destinations that I just referred to.
0: Do you see that as a, I see it as a benefit, certainly as a consumer, you know, if I have to go to the grocery store anyways, or go shopping anyways, to be able to sort of multitask and plug my car in and let that fuel up while I'm doing something I would be doing anyways. Um, and that's certainly... I think a benefit, especially when you live somewhere like Alberta, where we have these harsh winters, no one wants to stand out in the cold mm-hmm. pumping gas. So I've certainly noticed those sort of destination chargers popping up all over. And I imagine it's probably just going to become more prevalent.
1: Yeah, I fully I totally agree with you. And so we see so far, we see that our usage on nose is very high. Um, because people like going there. People are going for groceries anyway, as you just mentioned. Some people like going to the gym and if they're going to be there, why not charge their vehicle while they're there? Um, and so we want to go where customers want to be.
0: And have you, is this a global initiative? I know, obviously, installing these chargers in Canada, I know Shell has already begun that, but is, are you doing this in other parts of the world as well?
1: We are. And I'd say one of one of the phrases I heard uh, over the past couple of years is that the energy transition will happen at different paces in different places. And so some parts of the world, let's say in Norway or China, are very far advanced in electric vehicle charging and are moving rapidly. Um, some parts of the world are slower. And I'd say that Canada is in that sort of top quartile for moving quickly, but this is also in only certain locations. Okay. And so, so far, um british columbia is very fast something that surprised me a lot when when i've come back to canada was that quebec is very fast as well and so these will go faster than other parts of canada um, and then beyond that it's also i would i would gauge to say that drivers within cities are more willing to do it than in rural locations um, and so back to your original question of whether this is an initiative we'll do all over the world yes we will but only when customers are ready for it and so in places where there is less, uh, say, adoption of electric vehicle charging, we, we will wait until customers are ready.
0: That makes sense. So, Terry, as you say you work in e-mobility, but you also work for a huge oil and gas company. So I'm just curious to know what are some myths you've heard about EVs as you're kind of going out and talking to people? What are, what are some things people tell you that you're just like, That's, that doesn't make any sense?
1: <laughs> Um, I, I hear a lot of things and, um, and some of them do make sense as well. And so it, it's a complicated area. And I think this is also why AMA is doing these series of podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated and fast moving space and it's also surprisingly controversial. And so um, for me, I I'm simply interested in it and, and very enthusiastic about it, obviously. Um, but I've also seen it as quite controversial. And, and if I can get a little philosophical for a second, what, what I often see is something called binary bias. And what binary bias is, is that when there is something complex, um, people want to oversimplify an issue into one or two conclusions. And so electric vehicles are good or bad. Um, I like them or I don't like them. Um, they work or they don't work. And so rather than seeing sort of the com- complexities in between those, I see it as very black and white. But in electric vehicles, this is also the case. So if you go on to... YouTube and you look up electric vehicles, um, there's very few of them that are just sort of like neutral in the middle. It's either what you call sort of like the, the evangelists that, that are sort of like very much preaching the case and, and saying everything is wonderful with them, or you get folks who are saying the opposite, that they're, they're not working at all, that the opposite. Um, and I'd say it's it's probably somewhere in the middle. And so with that, I'd say that If anyone tells you that they're absolutely perfect and everything works perfectly, I I would say that's a myth. Um, At the same time, if somebody says that they're, they're, I don't know, garbage and that they (laughs) don't work and that you should never get one, I'd also say that's a myth. Um, And so I'd say that for me, what I've learned in this space is to really recognize the nuances and rather than sort of seeing one extreme or the other to, to see that it is complex.
0: Yeah, It's, you know, we spoke to the Electric Vehicle Association of Alberta, and they kind of pointed out that, yes, there are issues with EVs, but there are also issues with the traditional ICE vehicles as well. So I think that's a fair point that you make.
1: I I think that's a good way to put it, because I, I remember when I was 19 years old, I could afford my first Mazda MX Three. I insured it through AMA, um, and that car broke down all the time. And so, for for people now to sort of say, well, electric vehicles—if um, you ran out of uh, uh, electricity, you have to get towed. Well, I had my ICE vehicle towed a long time <laughs> as well. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say some of the myths. So, first of all, I'll say maybe some of the things I think are true, um, and these aren't all ones that I like, but I will acknowledge they're true. So, so. Um, One of them that there are big challenges for the industry to overcome. And so this includes minerals for batteries, the the need to upgrade grids. Mm. Um, Another one is that EVs are expensive today. And so for the first batch of electric vehicles, they are for the early adopters. And it is a new technology. So today they are expensive. Um, They won't always be that way. But for today... They are expensive vehicles. Right. Um, the next one that I'd say is true is, and, and this is probably to be confirmed in, in your other episode on cold weather, but batteries are tougher in colder climates.
0: Right. But the argument can be made that all vehicles are tougher in Alberta's harsh winters.
1: Indeed, don't worry, I've got arguments against all these. I just want to show that I'm balanced.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course.
1: Um, and, and so that, that I'm not being too much propaganda just for, for electric vehicles, but these are things that, that will be challenges and that we've got to work through. Um, we also recognize that consumers have a lot of choice with electric vehicles, and this is something that I think is a wonderful thing um, because consumers can choose to charge at home. And so if they've got a garage and plug-in in and time, they can charge there. They can also charge, choose to charge on the road, whether that's at what we referred to earlier as destination or at, the, at our shelf floor court. So it will be a lot different. Um, a few myths, because you asked, I, I, I give a long winding answer, but for the mm-hmm. myths, I'd say um, it's a myth that EVs are only for the
0: 1%. Oh, that's one that hasn't come up.
1: Yeah, and so if they say that EVs are for sort of like the elitist, because they are expensive, Mm -hmm. I would say wait a couple of years and then you will see them very mainstream. So everything that we know around the the EV driver today um, will evolve over the coming years as the auto OEMs begin offering a bigger range of models and at more reasonable price points. Um, I think it's also... A myth to to believe that there will be a sudden switch at one point in time, and so we study this all the time, where we sort of say, how will the the the, the car fleet of Canada evolve over time? And people say, oh well, when will EVs happen? First of all, you could have a number of different views on that. Second of all, it's not all at once, and so it's not like one year all of them will happen. Um, this is a transition that takes time. We will have Drivers who will uh, want to use internal combustion engine, and we will provide them those fuels over time. Um, and, and it will be a sort of like a, a natural evolution towards electric vehicles. Um, I'd also say the final myth is that people should wait for everything to be perfect before moving to an EV. Mm. Um, and, and this is the one where, where you sort of get the, the skeptics who will point out to any flaws or anything like that. And, and to the point that you just raised, um, all vehicles and all offers and products have flaws. And I'd say that the, the pros are beginning to outweigh the cons for many people um, and will continue to move in that direction in the coming years.
0: Terry, thank you so much for talking to me today. I try to end all of my interviews with this question. So if you'll indulge me, Mm -hmm. what are you most excited for when it comes to the future of transportation?
1: Well, first of all, you can probably tell I'm excited already. So I apologize to your listeners for me speaking so fast.
0: Oh, don't apologize.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, What am I most excited about for the future of transportation? The obvious one that it will be cleaner. And so we have more demand for energy around the world as the population grows and and sort of we have growth of the middle class. So we have way more energy that is needed and it will be cleaner. So that's something that's really exciting. Um, The second one is the one I referred to a few minutes ago, which is the word choice. And so I like the, the concept that drivers will have more choice. So whether they choose gasoline hydrogen electric vehicles um they can choose to charge at home at the mall at a shell station so i like the options and the convenience for drivers and so it's one of the things that is getting better not worse for society mm. um and then finally and this is this is where i might sound a bit cheesy but is that um working together society can make a real positive change on us and so it's not just one company doing this or one consumer doing it but it's a uh, Uh, Our our government is supporting auto OEMs, those purchasing, as well as those of us building the infrastructure, so they're helping to fix some of the chicken and the egg in the industry. Um, Auto OEMs are developing new technology. Uh, Canadian consumers are having an open mind to try try something new, and companies like ourselves are are providing the energy and uh, providing the infrastructure, so it's not all perfect every day or from day one, um, but... It's going in the right direction. And I, I think when we think around the, the future of transportation, um, the future looks much brighter than the past in my view.
0: Thank you. No one's um, said they're most excited for flying cars yet. So I'm hoping one day someone <laughs> will say that.
1: <laughs> I, I have seen prototypes for them.
0: Yeah. You know what? <laughs> yeah. The future is coming up quickly. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Terry. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Terry Broughton from Shell. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We are, of course, available wherever you get your podcast. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at community at ama.ab.ca. Talk to you next week.